Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. All of the transcripts from the previous episodes are live on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm, or you can follow us on Twitter, of course. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I always accept LinkedIn requests, as long as you don't aggressively try to sell to me like one guy this week. Now, here's a question. Have you got one of those Alexas, one of those home assistants? I can't wait for them to get good. I've got one of the, uh, the brand new Alexa screen ones. It's the Echo Show, I think. I've tried all of them. I think it's fair to say you could describe them as work in progress. I've tried uh, Siri, Google Home, Alexa. I think basically it's a test of patience. If you don't swear at them at least once, there's something wrong with you. Basically, all I want is something that simplifies my morning routine. My morning routine is I get up, I go into my kitchen, I say, Alexa, play BBC Radio 1 or BBC Radio 4 sometimes on kitchen, and that's the kitchen speaker. It's just all a bit complicated, isn't it? And I know that we live like a, a pampered life. I just want something that has a screen that listens to what I do every day that turns that into a button. I just want to get rid of that tongue twister from my life. Anyway, but the reason why I mention it is if you do have an Alexa, there's some news for you here. When you go home tonight, say, Alexa, pause then, obviously, learn the eat, sleep, work, repeat skill. Here's me demoing how to use it. Alexa, learn the eat, sleep, work, repeat skill. Alexa, play Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Playing remote control from Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast. <laughs> I think it bleeped there because I'd already taught it the skill. If you want to go to a previous episode, you say Alexa, pause, skip. Amazing. All set up by my friend Kurt. If you want me to uh, connect you with Kurt, just link into me. Today's episode is fascinating. In many ways, it's the partner piece to last week's episode about remote working. It's it's fascinating also because it sort of feels like a lot of the things are starting to click into place now. We're starting to really build a sense of what we need to change at work and what really matters. The guest today is Ben Wabber. Ben is the CEO of Humanize. Humanize is this company that came out of the MIT in Boston. And long-time listeners will remember that Sandy Pentland at MIT helped use the sociometric badges to discover something called human physics. The idea that you can measure how people are interacting with each other and then through that you can diagnose how to improve their work. So these sociometric badges are what Ben Wabber has gone on to, to use. They're sort of like those lanyard badges that hang around your neck at work. 
effectively what happens is, and Ben's going to explain this, but they measure workplace interactions and they measure who we talk to and how often we talk to them. Now, Ben studied with Sandy Pentland and helped turn the work that they were all doing there at the MIT into a company. So that's a firm called Humanize. Humanize now have more data on how we interact in offices than any organization in the world, and they can use it to improve our jobs. So I think the chat's going to be fascinating. I caught up with Ben on the floor of a conference he just presented at in, in London last week. Uh, the chat's fascinating. I think you might want to revisit some of it. I've loaded the transcript onto the website. We were delighted to have Ben speak at the Culture 2.0 event in early November. And as I said, the audio didn't record. So I was grateful that he gave me another chance to, to catch up with him. I love this work. Ben's work is truly visionary because he's not giving you his opinion. He's giving you what he's discovered from the data. I think you're going to love this. This is Ben. Our whole conversation is going to be about this whole idea of people analytics and the, the ability that we can learn a lot about how people behave from just watching them with data and, and evidence. Do you want to talk through, like, the, the before we get in, how you do this data? Because, for example, a, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about is cohesion. And cohesion is something that you observe through these sociometric badges, right? Yes. So do you want to explain what the badges are? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So again, broadly speaking, there are two ways we collect data. One is with digital data, so like email, chat, meeting data, and the other are with sensors. And uh, you know, our badges, the sociometric badges, are one way to do that. These badges, you can think of them as a next generation company ID badge. Right? We have, uh, again, your typical ID badge has RFID in it. This is the chip used to tap into a door. And that's a sensor. And if I put little RFID chips in the, in the ceiling, I can figure out where you are. Besides, again, being creepy, that doesn't tell you how people are interacting, how they're collaborating at work. Now, what we've done is add some additional sensors to those ID badges, specifically uh, microphones, uh, Bluetooth, infrared, and accelerometers. What the microphones do is they don't record what you say, but in real time we're doing voice processing. How much are you talking? What's your tone of voice? How loud are you talking? And from that we can figure out how quickly you're speaking. Are you being interrupted? Are you dominating conversation? Those sort of things. Using infrared and Bluetooth and combining that with a microphone, I can figure out who's talking to who, where people are within the offices, and that enables you to figure out, again, how are people spending their time? Right? Are you working alone versus in a meeting? But of course, then also really look at what the network is across the company. Right? Do you have a very broad network? Do you talk to many different people who don't communicate very much to each other? Or do you have this very cohesive network where the people you talk to talk a lot to each other? Right? Those are very different things. And to really understand that at a deep level, you need this very fine-grained sensor information so that you can accurately figure out who's actually talking. So through all of this, what we've been able to observe through, through your work here then is you've been able to spot patterns of where... Um, I mean, did, did you originally start as a student of, of Alex Pentland? And, and yeah. You, you were working with Alex Pentland yeah. at MIT. That's right. He was my advisor. Okay. And uh, originally we were using this kind of technology actually in the lab to look at things like salary negotiation and speed dating. Just from looking at these signals, could you predict who's going to win a negotiation? Could you predict who's going to go out on a date? Just based on these signals. Not what people said, but how they said it. And we could really, really accurately. We could predict, for example, who's going to win a salary negotiation about 85% of the time. And why? Yeah. What, what, was, what was giving you that signal? Everyone's interested in the salary yeah. negotiation one. <laughs> no, it's, uh, um, I normally charge you know, $9.95 right now. But the, uh, what's critical there are a couple things. Uh, one is your uh, dominance level. Like, do I interrupt you? Can I successfully interrupt you? That means something about my power, my social power. 
Um, but even beyond that, things like your speaking speed and your volume modulation are really, really important. If you tend to speak a little bit more quickly, if I tend to have more variance in how I talk, so I don't just speak with this same tone, monotone tone of voice, same volume, but you you have more emphasis, those sort of things, that indicates you're, um, you're probably gonna win or do better in that negotiation. Again, these are very fine-grained things. These are things that actually humans aren't very good at coding. Like even when, so in the past, you would have some poor grad student have to listen second by second through uh, one of these audio clips or watch a video and write down what's happening. This is a way to do that automatically, again, using sensors. Now, then we had a professor actually from the business school at MIT come over to us. He, you know, we'd worked with a bunch of people in the business school on this research. But he said, you know, you've been using this in the lab, but I bet that would be really interesting in a workplace. Right? What if you measure these sort of things while people were working for a month at a time? And that sounded really interesting. You know, we'd never done that before. No one had ever done anything like that before. And, and this professor was also collecting email data and surveys every day. We added on these badges, though. And we didn't know what we were doing at first. You know, we collected four gigabytes of data per person per day, huge amounts of data. But what should you look at? And first we said, well, listen, we're just going to look at who talks to who. Because it's really simple. There's decades of research on that as being important using surveys. Let's see if we can at least replicate that. And what we were able to show was that just looking at those metrics, we were able to predict performance about six times better than all the other metrics put together. And that was huge, right? doing very simple things. And then over time at MIT, we were adding more and more uh, features. We were getting into more and more detail. We were showing in more and more companies that we could do the same sort of thing. And that's really the, the science base that we uh, built up um, over those five, six years uh, at MIT. Okay, I wanted to, to look at a couple of things, and, and you, you give some examples here. What I love is that uh, while most of us probably tell ourselves our jobs are not like call centres, actually call centres can be really instructive for, you know, their high-pressure environments. Yes. Our jobs are becoming high-pressure environments. Yeah. And some of the patterns of behaviour that we can see in call centres, I think, are very instructive about what's happening to, to our jobs and our work. Yeah. So through your badges, you were able to learn something that was, I think, heretical to the idea of call centers till then. Call yeah. centers were like these efficiency engines, right? They were yes. as close to yes. 19th century inventions of factories yeah. as, as we were possible to, right. to put uh, service workers through. Mm -hmm. But there was this notion that send them on break separately, you know, treat them very much as single entities. Yes. And Right, so let's go into specifically what you learned about stress in call centers and breaks in call centers. What you spoke about is a really important point because actually before we started looking at data from call centers, I assumed that what was going to be most predictive of performance was how employees talk on the phone to customers. That if you speak in a certain way, you can play calls more quickly, you're more productive. That's what I assumed. And it should be noted that it is really easy to measure individual performance in call centers. It's how quickly you complete calls. There's a few other ways, but that's a very simple, simple metric that makes sense. Again, we go in and we collect who talks to who, how do people talk to each other, all these things over you know, a long period of time, many, many people. And what we saw was that by far the, the, um, the highest performing employees were people in these very cohesive networks. Again, the people that you talk to talk a lot to each other. Now here's the thing, I can explain that because it's a very stressful job. Again, if you're in a call center, you're getting, you're getting yelled at all day about stuff that's not your fault, that's your job. 
Now, previously, again, as you mentioned, you have breaks at a separate period of time from your coworkers, which means that imagine you have a tough call with a customer. You can't complain about that to anybody for eight hours at least. And by then I just want to go home. Of course, imagine now that I have a break at the same time as my coworker. I can complain about that. That seems reasonable. Seems like it'd be good. Beyond that, you can say, well, listen, if I'm in a very tight-knit group, a very cohesive group, and so first of all, if I complain to one person, then everybody else knows they can all support me. But then even if I think about it from a performance perspective, well, imagine I learned how to solve a particular problem. Right? If I tell one of my friends, all my friends know, and we'll share that information. And I will tell them, because even though I'm competing with them in terms of performance metrics for promotions and things like that, I know that they will eventually share back to me. And if they don't, we're going to cut them out of the group. Now, these are all things I can theoretically explain, but call centers have been optimized, not around that, but around individual efficiency. That if you're not on the phone, you're wasting time. Talking to a coworker is wasting time, is what I've been thought. But then we collected this hard data and we were able to show that really the opposite was true. What that enabled um, the bank to do was to test this new break structure. Well, for half of the teams, they gave them breaks at the same time. Really simple, doesn't actually cost them anything, but they would not have done that. They would have never done that without this data. I mean, even you had frontline employees in these call centers saying we should do something like this, but they would never do it because it had been optimized. They'd proven with the data they had that the current way of doing things was optimized. Now they have new data willing to test it. You go back and you see, well, what, what happened? Well, the groups got about 18% more cohesive, which you would expect because now I have a break at the same time as everyone on my team. I'll talk to them. Stress went down by about 19%, which again, you would expect because you can, now you can vent all these things. We measured that both through uh, surveys, but also changes to tone of voice, uh, the way people speak, is uh, significantly predictive of stress. What was amazing though is beyond that, the calls and employees, uh, their performance went up by 23%. They completed calls 23% more quickly. Now, importantly, the groups where you didn't change anything, they had no change in any of these metrics. What's really amazing about that is if you go into a company and you say, we're going to improve performance by over 20%, the whole reaction is to say, we have to completely change how we work. But these results show that if you can find these social levers that people are responsive to, and you can act on them in the right way, you're going to get really big results. And what, what I saw, I think it was elsewhere in your work, but what I mm -hmm. saw that this cohesiveness is built not in meetings. We don't yep. build this cohesiveness yeah. in meetings. We don't build this cohesiveness actually sitting around our desks chatting, do yep. we? We build it in mm. these downtime, yep. um, almost sort of yep. pressure relief, stress relief environments. That's right. 80% of the interaction actually in these call centers that was uh, the cohesive interaction uh, happened when people's lunch breaks overlap by about 15 minutes. Again, these are informal structures that tend to create um, those kind of interactions. Now, that does all depend on how you structure those times. If I wanted to create uh, more diverse interactions with people in many different groups, you could also do that, right? I could shift, I could uh, shift where people sit so you sit next to people in other groups. I could, again, make it so that the people who have a break at the same time as you in the same break area are from different groups. You can do these things, right? But it's all about how you structure it depending on what makes a particular group or organization effective or what matches with their strategy, then that's how you're gonna to wanna to plan these things. Um, but that you're right, that certainly you do get some interaction sitting at your desk. In, in a call center, they don't get any interaction by their desk because they're on the phone if they're at their desk. Um, 
in other so, so in yeah. other environments the, the interaction at desks might be a bit more helpful yeah I, I would say in other environments there is a very significant impact of desk location um, and that will structure what your network looks like um, again if I sit in a little pod with three other people I'm gonna talk to them a lot that's gonna happen um, again if I only sit next to one other person and I'm not really near other people then obviously that's not going to have a huge, it won't enable me to naturally have uh, a very cohesive network. Yeah. Yeah. And so you end up with this situation where, I think you describe it, where aside from those sort of coordinated breaks in modern office environments, the things that determine greater cohesiveness are where you place the water cooler, where you place the Absolutely. coffee machine, yeah. the length of the lunch tables. Well, like those things that probably we'd probably ignore those <laughs> or delegate the placing of those things. That's right. I mean... The location of the coffee machine has about as much impact on who talks to who as the org chart. You think about how much time we spend agonizing over the org chart, as we should, it's very important. But in a similar way, we should probably spend a lot more time thinking about where the coffee machine is. If you put it, for example, within one group area, that group will be more internally focused. They will have a lot, uh, very cohesive network. On the other hand, if I put it between two groups, they will talk a lot more to each other. Again, if I want that, that's something I should do. On top of that, even things like the size of lunch tables, as you mentioned, I'm in one company, you saw that uh, by far the most productive people, they were eating lunch with 11 other people. And sometimes it was 10, really it was nine other people, but it was never more than that. And by far the least productive people, they were always eating lunch in groups of, with three other people. Sometimes it was two, very rarely it was one, but it was never more than that. And we wanted to figure out why was this happening? We go to the cafeteria and we saw what was happening. By one set of doors, all the tables had 12 seats. By the other set of doors, all the tables had four seats. Really simple. Again, who's thinking about how big the lunch table is? No one, no one cares. How, how important could it be? But it had a double-digit impact on performance. Right? And the idea that if I said So the bigger table you, was the higher performance. Well, right. Performance. And, and so the, what would happen is that you, would sit, you wouldn't go to lunch with 11 other people. Yeah. You'd sit down at a table, other people would sit next to you, and you'd start talking to them. Yeah. And later in the week, you were significantly more likely to speak with someone if you had lunch with them. Again, not shocking, but as you can imagine, if you ate at these bigger tables, these were uh, software developers, so your code depends on the code of people in other divisions, you're much more likely to know them if you sit at these bigger tables. It had that kind of impact. Again, it's not to say that for every organization, big lunch tables is better. It's what are the behaviors you want to elicit? And things like lunch tables, desk size, coffee machine location they all have a very significant impact on that and if you're not consciously thinking about those choices if you're picking something just because it looks pretty um, or because it's easier or cheaper you are probably making a very big mistake so let's go on and look at the issue of remote work okay i'm gonna jump in here because i sort of asked a confused question here by asking about some data in Ben's book he's got a book called People Analytics about when the right time to go home sickies and he says the data is so strong that we add to the impact of people around us that there's this sweet spot of when we should go home sick Ben leads into the key point about our impact on people in in the work environment effectively us being around them has a very very big impact on their productivity importantly when you work from home it doesn't just affect you it affects everybody you work with. And that the data we have, uh, which again, largest data set on workplace interaction in the world, you dramatically reduce the performance of the people you work with by you being at home. And it's not to say that you can't communicate with the people you work with, we just don't, naturally. 
Now, you can force yourself to do it, but it takes a lot of work. Again, I travel a lot for work. Um, again, here in London today, I still call every one of my direct reports even though I'm here. That takes effort though. This isn't on the calendar. That's something that I will do. But even you know, many years on doing this, it takes work. It takes discipline to do that. And the vast majority of people, you're not going to do that. You work at home. I might send you an email, maybe. Otherwise, I'm going to work on some document. Again, I will get my individual work done. But the thing that's important is that over the course of a year, on average, if you max out the amount of focus time, focus work that you do, about 40% of your time is going to be spent on focus work, order magnitude. Right? You're not going to spend much more than that. Um, you could spend less than that depending on your role. That's the max. What does that mean? Well, it means that on average, if you worked two days a week from home, that would mean that when you go into the office, you should be doing zero focus work, zero, only interacting with other people. That's impractical. And the, the yeah. reason why, the yes. reason why is because our interactions, as much as they might seem unproductive, actually correlate to higher output and higher productivity. Correct. The whole point is we like to think of individual performances as the number of you know, reports I write or emails I answer. Like that's productive. But that, right, talking with uh, my coworker at the coffee machine, that's not productive. It's the, almost the exact opposite. Uh, in the sense, of course, listen, at the end of the day, some work needs to get done. You need some of that. But the thing is, if you make 20 people you work with 10% more effective, now that should be your job. I don't care if you're interacting by the coffee machine the whole day. I don't need you to do any individual work. That had been really hard to measure in the past. And now we can measure that. The thing is that it's, again, not to say that focus work is never important. It is sometimes important. But that the stuff we do is really, really complex today. The whole reason we're in organizations is because together we can do something we couldn't do by ourselves. To do that effectively, you need to coordinate. Coordinating effectively means you don't have to redo work. Right? You get done, that done faster. What's interesting is if I rely, for example, on formal specifications, I could do 80% of my time as focused work. But because I don't understand the exact um, you know, the edge cases of what you're working on, then you're going to have mismatches and you will have problems that you'll have to rework and you'll still be doing more focused work, but you will be doing way more of it than you would if you spend more time collaborating and getting on the same page. Right. And so what this means is that at a high level, again, if you work home from home one day a week, it's prob there's actually a lot of data on that. That's fine, doesn't really have a significant negative impact on anybody. You get beyond that, there is, there is an impact that starts to happen. Not just on you. It's not about what we output. It's about how can we help everybody we work with be better. And I think that that is really a mindset that we have to think more about, right? That um, if we just don't feel like commuting in today, right? Or I'm a little bit tired. It's, it's a selfish choice. And again, sometimes being selfish is okay. But if you consistently choose yourself over other people, you're not you are, first of all, hurting your long-term career prospects, but you're also hurting everybody you work with. And this is specifically rooted in the data you've seen, right? Correct. So, so none of this is your opinion. This is important, right. And this is, I mean, again, it, there's, first of all, there is a lot of research on this, but now this is a point where we have so much data on this that I can quantitatively show you these things. So you specifically gave the example that Marissa Mayer, when she took over at Yahoo, she reached for what a lot of leaders do when they're sort of they're, they're new, they reach for control. And so she summoned everyone who was a home worker and she summoned them. And I thought what you brilliantly articulated is that you counterposed 
that which was opinion, and it was actually rooted in what you'd seen at another company. Correct. And you looked at it from a data perspective, and you talked yeah. about the gap between software developers. Yes. Do you want to just explain what the data says on that then? Yeah. A lot of people think of software developers as they're solitary people who sit in the corner drinking Mountain Dew and no one talks to them, right? And again, I'm a former programmer. I like Mountain Dew. It's a stereotype for a reason. But the thing is, your code depends on the coder of thousands of other people. And if you don't communicate with them, that's where the bugs pop up. Again, literally decades of research on this. If my code depends on your code and we don't communicate, it takes us 32% lower to complete that code. That's huge. Pure and simple. Right. Uh, a third th lung. It, you, that's right. Yeah. It, it's really straightforward. And again, multiple studies have replicated this over it, not just programming, big engineering projects, people doing aircraft engines, um, complex construction projects, same thing. So actually for, you, for this purpose, you yeah. said uh, coders and developers using Slack and things like that is actually a really good thing because they, can, they well, can talk in real time. Well, so again, it, what I will say is that We've measured usage of things like Slack um, and other chat tools or team collaboration tools. They don't appear to change this, equa this, right. this equation, okay. right? It's, if I know you, I communicate with you. If I don't know you, I pretty much don't communicate with okay. you. And, and know you, like, I have to have met you face-to-face, -face, right? Um, and there's also a lot of good work on that, that if we meet face-to-face -face first, we look more like a face-to-face -face team than if we never meet face-to-face. -face. So you've almost got this stack ranking. Face-to-face -face teams are the best. If for most can't. things, and, and again, it is for most okay. things, right? So again, if, if I'm trying to roll out something in India, I need people there, right? If, I'm, if, if I've got salespeople on the ground that need to meet with customers, of course, they should be outside the office. But for uh, collaboration-intensive tasks, the technologies that we use today are not conducive to supporting the kinds of collaboration we need to be really successful all the time. Sometimes, one day a week, couple times a week, okay. That's something that is doable and we can do. But you get beyond that and it starts to break down very rapidly. And that, again, what we've shown from you know, over years worth of, of data is that, again, if you work remotely, you communicate, even if I just say uh, you only need to communicate once with people you have a dependency with in software development, you communicate about uh, 8 or 9% less, uh, fewer times than if you're co-located. Now you back that out again, for a company like Yahoo, that would have been worth well over $150 million a year. Even beyond that, that difference. If I look at the quality of those interactions, again, not even looking at face-to-face -face communication that's lost, people who work remotely communicate on average 7.8 times about these dependencies. People who are co-located digitally, again, communicate on average closer to 38 times about these dependencies. And so if you look at that, that impact, that's probably even much beyond that $150 million impact. It's something that, again, I bump into in the hallway. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I forgot. I have to get back to you about those things. It's those kind of serendipitous interaction, the interactions that build trust and all these other things. That's what remote collaboration technologies are just not good at yet. Um, someday we will probably get, be good at that, but we're, we're not there yet. Right, so, so Marissa Meyer, had she wanted to pursue that, then she should have gone down the, the data route rather than here's what we did. What I'll Google. always argue right, is say this is something we've seen in general. If you have a hypothesis that your company is different, that's totally fine. But you need to measure it, right? Otherwise, you could, I'd say in any case, you should measure it because you'll make a mistake. And obviously, I'm partially biased on that. But at the same time, maybe your company is, is an outlier or because of whatever your, your culture, your strategy, you have different things that make you effective. And that's fine. When you're making these really large decisions, these decisions that frankly decide the future of your company, if you're doing that because 
well at this other company where I worked, or I read this article about this other company, and they did this and they were successful. If you're arguing that's how you should do things, I mean, that's crazy. We don't do that with any other part of business. You don't say, I saw this cool ad on TV, let's send $300 million doing the same sort of ad because I like that ad. You don't say, well, I am going to structure my supply chain this way because that's cool. And you say, well, actually you use data to make and test to make those decisions. With the people side of business, we have to manage in the same way and just admit we don't really know what the right answer is. We have hypotheses and that's good. Let's see what works and then let's iterate on that and let's learn from that. And that we have to learn that you know, for our own companies and taking into account what other people have done, but really making sure that we're figuring out what makes us successful rather than what just some expert says makes us successful. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The, the final thing I wanted to talk uh, about before we talk about Humanize was um, creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got this notion that's passed down to us through like the, the, sort of the legends that we've yes. grown up with, whether it's Leonardo, whether it's yeah. Picasso. These, these great creative people spend their time in solitude. Yes. And actually all your evidence and the just looking into what you found here... Yeah. And we, we heard something similar from Sandy Pentland when he talked about social physics. Creative teams are more vocal and more energized. That's right. It, it is interesting that in the West, right, we have these myths of you know, Leonardo da Vinci. He, well, he just sat in a cabin all, all day and invented stuff. And first of all, that's not even accurate. Almost all his projects were collaborations with other people. He collaborated. It's not an accident that he happened during the Renaissance. He was collaborating with artists, with scientists, with people from many different disciplines in many different cities. He wasn't sitting by himself. We see the same sort of things in organizations where we think, well, I get this really creative person and I can lock them in a broom closet for a year. They're going to do great stuff. And that's garbage. That's just not accurate. Um, this great work done um, by some of my, uh, my colleagues, uh, Wynne Burleson out of uh, Arizona State, who were trying to measure creative teams. And again, what's creativity? It's, there's not a hard measure of creativity, but using subjective measures, he said, well, here are different teams that are various degrees of creative, from very creative to less creative in many different organizations. And he said, well, what do these very creative teams seem to do differently? And goes in there and actually measures quantitatively. How do they interact with each other? How do they spend their time? Because you could argue, well, maybe people do spend all the time by themselves. But what you see is something very different. Now, to be fair, you're not, everybody isn't talking to each other all the time. You don't have this group that's extremely cohesive because then I know what you're doing all the time. You get group think, we're not getting new ideas. 
Instead, what you get are these groups who go out and they do talk to a lot of people from many different parts of the organization or outside the organization. Then they do come back together and they share those things and then they come up with new ideas. Right? But it's that sort of pattern. It's, it's almost like, as, as Sandy mentions, sort of the exploration pattern of bees, where what you have is different bees in a hive go and try random places for looking for flowers. And then when one finds flowers, they come back and they share that and they all literally by how vigorously they dance indicate how many flowers there are and then they pick the best flowers to go to and then everyone goes there. And it's the same sort of thing when it comes to people where when you have a team that's trying to trying to build some new product, going out and trying to get exposed to random things and some of the things will have no value and some will and you can't know that beforehand. But then by coming together and saying, well, here's what works, um, well, here's what we think would be a good idea and then as a group figuring out what you should do, uh, that tends to work really, really well. And there's great experimental evidence that shows the same thing. Quality of brainstorming sessions, for example, if you have people first go out on their own and think of ideas, but then come together to share, that is better than everyone having a single brainstorming session together. It's better than everybody coming out with ideas just by themselves. It's this, this process where you um, have exploration and then you combine that. That's really critical. I mean, this is just a revolution, right? And anyone who's interested in culture and then interested in sort of functional organizations, like the, yeah. the fact that you've been able to bring this, this learning in the last few years, and so you've got a company, Humanize, that effectively yes. is now taking what was previously work of, of the MIT yeah. and you, you sort of turned it into a, a company. Yeah. Explain how you, you're going about trying to, to bring that to companies and, and what, the way that people can access that. Yeah, what we're really trying to do is fit um, these really advanced people analytics technologies into tools that people can start to use today and then eventually build up more advanced capabilities. Really what we provide are modules around specific classes of people problems from you know, diversity inclusion, uh, workplace planning, uh, workload assessment, I mean, a whole bunch of things. If you go to our site you can see more of them. Um, but the idea is we can work with data that you already have or add additional data sources from ID badges or what have you to provide real collaboration intelligence um, on these specific people decisions um, and then eventually get to a place where not just we provide you intelligence and help you gain insight into things you're already doing, but eventually get to a place where you can use these metrics to plan new interventions, to rapidly test how you manage the business. And that takes time, right? But we are the technological foundation that enables companies to get to a place where they can move the people side of their business at the same speed that they move the commercial side of their business. And certainly the, the way you describe it at the end of your book, you talk about just extrapolating these developments and yeah. saying, yeah. okay, so maybe we'll end up at this. Maybe we'll, and, and actually the one thing that really struck me from reading it is a lot of the things that we discover, one company discovers that if people do this, it, this works. And yet we don't, we don't systematize those things. Do yeah. we? We, don't, we don't harness any advantage from those things. Yeah. That is the sort of thing that as we gather more and more data about what actually our customers are doing with this technology, um, we're starting to share that back. Where, for example, one of our customers you know, reorgs to a functional organization, they move from geographic base to functional base. How does that change how people work? Now we have some data points on that. Another one of our customers moved from private offices to open plan. What does that do? One of our customers implemented a particular diversity and inclusion training program. What does that do? So what we have is more and more of these data points where a company implements something, and then we have the behavioral impact of that. How does that change how people work? 
what that means is that actually as you start looking into early next year, we're going to be providing sort of metrics so that you can say, well, if you want to change this behavior by 10%, here are three things the companies have done that have done that. And we'll do more and more of those things. And the idea that that's, you know, while currently we're, we're certainly geared towards, uh, you know, serving, you know, large enterprise customers, and that's what we're going to do for the foreseeable future. Eventually, you know, what we're going to do and where the industry as a whole is going to go is to serving also SMBs, companies doing very different things, and that there are massive opportunities to learn from those companies as well. And then again, you'll have a, a future where these large companies are learning from small companies in, in different countries, different regions, different industries, and that rather than, again, wait for somebody to write a case study in Harvard Business Review, right, which could take years before someone discovers this thing, day by day, we'll be discovering those things. And people will be able to really rapidly iterate on these, these new ways of managing the business that we just, you know, if we think about what that does, computers are really good at uncovering these large patterns, at understanding the, the statistical implications of those changes. People are really good at being creative and at communicating complex information very quickly. And conversely, computers are terrible at those things. The really desirable future is where you combine both those things. Right? And I think that with people analytics technology in general, it really creates an environment where that becomes possible. Fantastic. Good. Fascinating. I, I, I mean, for me, this yeah. is just like such a cutting edge of understanding <laughs> how we can make work yeah. more productive, yeah. but happier and, and a better place to be. So yeah. really appreciate your time. Awesome. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. Absolutely brilliant. Ben's company, like I say, is Humanize. I've linked to it on the page of the episode. I'm so indebted to Ben and the team at Humanize. I'm blown away by their work. If you remember a few things from his work, it's never eat lunch alone. Think again where that water machine is. These things really matter. Next week's episode is an interview with someone I have to pinch myself to believe I did. It took me about six months to land it, but Bjarke Ingels is the number one architect in the world. And you might know a few names in architecture. Frank Geary, Norman Foster, Zaha Hadid. Bjarke Ingels is... Amongst architects, he's now regarded as the best of the lot. He's the best architect practicing in the world right now. His buildings are these spellbinding but immensely practical structures. And you, you might have heard of him because uh, he's been commissioned in the last few years to really sort of build some of the centerpieces of our modern cities. He's helping to build two World Trade Center uh, he's helping to build the new Google headquarters in California and their brand new commissioned landscaper offices in King's Cross. I studied for two weeks for this interview and his work blew me away every single day. In Bjarke Ingels, here's a man who's helping to imagine what the workplace of the future looks like. And I wanted to know how he understood that and how if he's been asked to envisage something that will reach out into 30, 40, 50 years ahead... How does he start to think about that process of thinking about what work's going to look like in the future? It's an incredible interview. I may do a YouTube version of it, actually, because, you know, as we're talking about some of his structures, uh, I might try and give you the opportunity to see the buildings we're talking about. It's an amazing episode, not to be missed. I'll see you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, 
edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.